0: I think stubbing your toe in the middle of the night is the best way to find out what your favorite cuss word is. <laughs> you can debate that, but I do, I do think it has worked for me and my family really, really well. You know, I, I am a late night, Person who drinks water goes to the bathroom. Probably more information that you need to know. Um, also, if my kids get out of bed, oftentimes my wife hears it because I sleep more soundly than she does. But sometimes I walk kids back to their bed, and you know what would really help in the middle of the night if you just turn on a light. And I'm just I'm not smart enough. You know, I've lived for 40 years now, and I haven't quite gotten that if you just turn on a light, you will miss the edge of your bed. You'll miss like the the counter atop with your hip or a chair in the middle where. A chair not be, and you will not step on a Lego and at the at the, at the latest parts of the night. But if you ever want to find out, again, your favorite cuss word, just don't don't turn on the lights in the middle of the night, walk around aimlessly, hit your toe, it will come right out to the surface, and you will know which one is your favorite. You know, we have mental and verbal filters, you know, to help filter that stuff out, but there are times in our life where it just pops out. You know, the reason I bring this up is that when people have a relationship with God, or they begin a relationship with God, or they begin to try to discover God, it does feel like He's sitting in kind of a dimly lit room. There are only portions of Him that we can actually see. We may be able to hear His voice a little bit through Scripture and through the Holy Spirit, but you don't get a perfect picture of who He is. And the surprising thing for most people is as you read Scripture, you understand that God actually wants it that way. He does not turn on all the lights at once so you can see every part of him. And there's a reason for that. In fact, he just turns on a few little lights so you can see enough of him to believe and know that he is there, but not so much that you still have to seek him and be curious and understand that God in some way, shape, or form is mysterious. He is knowable and seeable, but he's also mysterious. And what I want to talk about today is I want to talk about Jesus being the light of of the world. So if you're just joining us for this series, or maybe you've been here before, and you're kind of wondering where we at, we've done something as a church we've never done before, which means we have gone through the Bible in a year. We started last May. We will end this upcoming May. And between January and March, from January, the start of the year, until Easter, we have said we're going to spend 90 days, because there was 90 days from January 1st until the silent Saturday where Jesus is put in the tomb and presumed dead. There are 90 days between that day and right before Easter for you to make a decision as to whether or not you are going to follow Christ and not just believe in him, or for you to believe in him for the very first time and say, I want to spend the rest of my life getting to know this man who calls himself God. And so in this big series of the Bible in a year, we are taking a pause or maybe a different way of, of thinking about it is an extended period of time on focusing on just one person, just one. Person between January and March. We're spending 90 days with Jesus and we've invited you to do the same. And then we've broken that up, if that was not confusing enough. We've broken that up. In January, we asked the question, What did people say about Jesus? In February, we're going to ask the question, What did Jesus say about himself? What did Jesus say about himself? You know, it's very, very hard to be self aware. But when someone asks you about yourself, especially if you're a guy, people often ask, What do you do? That's one of the frameworks of how we identify each other, is where we assign value. But when people ask you about yourself, you probably say things about yourself that tell other people about you. And it's different. You, you would never probably take out your license plate or license plate, your license and give it to someone. I'm 6'2", and I'm strawberry blonde. You know, that would be, a, those are facts, but you probably wouldn't use your license to describe who you are. <clears throat> you would say maybe what you do. You would say the things that you're into. You would say who you're related to, <clears throat> who you have helped bring up, who you're married to, all that sort of stuff. You would choose how to define yourself to other people. And Jesus does the same thing. And today, what I want to look at is one of his seven I am sayings in the Gospel of John. And here's the thing that Jesus has said about himself. Here's the first one I am the light of the world. It's an odd way of describing yourself to someone else. Jesus doesn't come out and say, I'm a first century rabbi, I'm traveling, I'm, I'm here to make disciples, and stuff like that. He uses a metaphor to describe who he is to people. He says, I am the light of the world. The world, And every time Jesus said something, there was always an implication, sometimes the opposite of what he said. And in this sense, we could see it this way. It means the world is in darkness. It means that the world does not have an absolute light for people to see by, for people to see other things and for people to see themselves. And for me, when I read something like this, especially when I read the words of Jesus, I often ask questions. And maybe I just ask too many questions. Uh, Maybe it's my philosophy training, or maybe I'm just a curious guy. But as Jesus said things, I often ask questions. And I ask these two questions when I come across this particular text. What kind of darkness does he mean? What kind of darkness does Jesus mean? It, it can't just be physical absence of light. And if we had more time, we could go into St. Augustine and we can go into uh, some of the other church fathers. And one of the things they believe is something called priv- boni, which is a privation of good, that things that are not good actually don't exist in and of themselves. It's a fascinating way of looking at the existence of things. And one of the ways we can uh, talk about that in terms of light is darkness actually isn't a thing. It's simply the absence of light, meaning if you had a dark room, you can't see color, you can't see shapes. It doesn't mean things in those rooms don't exist, but only when you shed light on them can you actually see what is there. And so it's interesting because Jesus is essentially saying the world is in darkness without me. And then the other question I would ask is this, what kind of light does he provide What does he mean when he says that? Because Jesus always chose his words very, very carefully. He always, I mean, Jesus is just the genius when it comes to communicating himself. It's part of the reason we still study his words today. I mean, we've had 2,000 years to look at what he has to say, and he not only still stumps us, he still illuminates God, he still causes us to be curious about who he is, and he causes us to lean in, to go, what did he mean when he said that? Now, in the Gospel of John, which we're going to look at real quick, Gospel of John, there's a couple names here, and I I want to help you understand this story a little bit. You know, when I first sat in church, I realized that people who do what I didn't explain enough, and I always confused things in the Gospels. I'm going to do my best to be clear about this. The Gospel writer John is going to talk about a different person named John. They're not the same person. The Gospel writer John and John the Baptist are two different places, two different people that he's talking about here. But the Gospel writer John, which is one of four accounts of Jesus's life. He's one of the eyewitnesses. His gospel or his giving of the good news, which is what the gospel means, is a different take on Jesus's life than what are called the other three, which is synoptic gospels. Two of them are eyewitnesses. Another one is a person who wrote after the fact, who gathered up all of these stories in order to provide a way of looking at Jesus's life. And all of them come across in different ways. We've, We've used this analogy before. It's kind of like a car crash. The event happened and a bunch of people have looked at it and they've Given their testimony as to what they saw. And John, the way he describes Jesus' life is different than the other gospels. He uses all sorts of metaphors. We talked about signs last week. And he also records a unique thing in his gospel. Um, at least for the seven sayings, is that Jesus often said, I am, and then he, he named something. And he would say, I am the bread of life, and I am the good shepherd, and I am the gate. And so in John's gospel, there's a unique way of portraying Jesus's words. And so in the gospel of John, he also starts out in a way that leads us down a path of who Jesus is. The other gospels really don't do. He says it this way in the beginning, and you probably read this before. And if you were to read this in ancient Greek, which I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say go t- spend your time, you know, reading ancient Greek. It takes a long time to get there, and there's all these great tools online. But if you were to read it, Some of the early sentences, or the first two sentences, are some of the most structurally sound and incredible forms of ancient Greek, Koine Greek. And the way that this is so important is that if you changed a word order, you moved it to the left or the right or one, you would have a version of Jesus that God never intended. And so it's fascinating the way that the Gospel writer of John moves his words around and puts them in a sentence to describe something specific about Jesus. Now, in English, he reads this way. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the, the word here would be logos. It's the person or the thing that would be at the center of all creation. The divine logos was a, an idea for people until, until the gospel writers personified this person. It says he was with God. Now there's a personal pronoun. If you were ancient Greek and you studied philosophy, you would get, okay, the divine logos is probably an idea. It's a thing. We don't quite understand it. But when the gospel writer John changes the divine logos to a personal program, he he gives a personality and personhood to this, which would have thrown so many people off. He was with God in the beginning, all things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. And in him was life. And that life was the light of man. And John continues, he says, the light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. So in John's gospel, he uses all sorts of metaphors to help us understand who Jesus is, why he came, what his purpose was, and what his purpose was not at the same time. And one of John's favorite um, ways of talking about Jesus and his mission was light and darkness, and he juxtaposes those two ideas, and to, to kind of like make this as simple as possible. Essentially, John was saying that darkness inhabited the world prior to Jesus coming in it. Well, God may have started off and he said that there, let there be light, and it, and it pushed the darkness out. That that was a different kind than what John means here. So there was a darkness in the world that means a few things. So I I did my best to try to come up with how to describe this metaphor in John's gospel. Light kind of means a couple different things. It means truth. It brings clarity. It means life. And it tells us a little bit about who God really is. Because prior to this... Even though it's in scripture that God is Father and Spirit and Son, prior to John's gospel, most people did not understand that God would personify himself and come to the earth as a man to be with humankind. Even though it's in scripture, most people missed it. And so in John's gospel, he uses the metaphor of light for a couple different reasons. Light brings truth. Darkness brings something different. Light brings clarity in life. Have you ever, like, tried to do something in the dark? Like, you're we like, trying to put two pieces together. I'm in my garage sometimes trying to figure something out. I was like, if I just flip this on, I can see what I'm doing. Like, if you put something in the light, you're more able to see what it is, how something fits together, or what you need to do with it. But that light also helps us understand that God is triune in his personhood. One in essence, three in personhood. Now, the antithesis of this is darkness. Darkness brings lies. Darkness brings confusion. Darkness ultimately symbolizes death and Satan and flesh. Now, there are probably more things here, but to simplify it, John wants to show that there is a clear contrast between worldly darkness, which brings confusion and death and lies, and where the glorification of the flesh happens. And Satan is ultimately in control. You know, maybe there's a reason that most robberies happen at night. That we do the things that we're not proud of at night. Because nothing nothing good happens after 11 p.m., right? We should be in bed. But most of the things that happen in life, people, you and I included, would love to hide and put in the darkness. But God won't allow that, as we'll see in just a second. So John's Gospel talks about this person. And he says, there was a man sent from God, whose name was John. So John is now writing about a different John. Again, John the Gospel writer is writing about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the person whom Jesus said, of all people who have ever been born, he's the best. But he's not the highest and most. He's not the one. He came as a witness to testify about the light. So that all may believe through him. He was not the light. So John's a great dude, he's going to be a prophet, he's going to be one of the last or the last of the Old Testament prophets, but he will not be the person that everyone should be looking for. And John wanted to make sure John understood that and the rest of us understood that as well. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light, meaning there could be false ones or there could be little lights, but the true, the one light that everyone was looking for was coming into the world. And he, he was in the world. And the world was created through him, which must have baffled people because it's super easy to understand a unknowable, fuzzy, kind of like distant creator that you can't really personify or see creating everything. That makes total sense. But John is basically saying, no, the person who is going to be in the world that you can high five and see and touch and they will have breakfast with people and who will talk with people, he's the one that everything is created through. That would have been hard for people to wrap their minds around. So, and yet the world did not recognize him. The world did not recognize its creator. He came to his own, his own people, and they did not receive him. But all who did receive him, because there were some, there were a few, he gave them the right to be called children of God to those who believe In his name, who were born, not of natural descent or the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but God. And Jesus would take up this motif later on when he talks about being born again. He does not mean of the flesh. He does not mean in the way that you and I would consider birth. This would be a new kind of birth, that Jesus would bring a new kind of spiritual birth to the world. The people who would see and who would hear him were already born, but not in the way that God had intended. And he continues on. He says, the word was made flesh and he dwelt, or he tabernacled in one one sense. He tabernacled among us and we observed his glory. And John continues on with his light motif because you can only see something if it's illuminated. You cannot see it if it's in the dark. It's like God stepped out of the shadows finally and he says, I'm here. I'm going to allow you to see me. And we observed God, which no one thought was possible. They thought, if you look at God, you die. And yet, God allowed himself to be observed. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then John gives us some parenthetical statements because he's like, you guys aren't that bright, so let me explain some stuff to you. John testified, and the first time I read this, I was like, this is really helpful, thank you. John testified concerning him, exclaiming, this was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me, which does not make sense, right? You're just like, okay, so John, you're saying you're honoring Jesus because he was before you, but he outranks you, but you were born in a similar time. What do you mean by that? It says, indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness, from Jesus's fullness, for the law was given through Moses. Now, this would have been, this would have been the pinnacle of Jewish thought at the time. And in some way, shape, or form, it's the pinnacle of our thought. That law can be absolute or that it can at least be something that can tell you what to do and what not to do. So the law was given through Moses. And Moses would have been the person that everyone at the time looked and said, Moses is the man. Moses is the guy that we derive our morality from. He is the guy who showed us God. He is the guy who walked with God. And John is trying to get us to say, Moses was great. But he was not the greatest Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, and no one has ever seen God, including Moses. Moses was, was given the task of walking and talking with God, but, but God said, I can't let you see me. And he put him in a cleft of rock, and he pushed, he, he made sure he did not see God's full glory because no one can do it. Which means in the first century, people got to see God in a way that Moses never got to. Pretty incredible. The one and only son who is himself God and who is at the father's side, he has revealed to him. So I wanna I want kind of summarize some of the stuff we've talked about just in this scripture and through the rest of the Gospel of John to set up the rest of our time together here. There's a few things that maybe are important that may not be completely obvious. Some of them are, some of them not. First is one, life and light are a part of God's good creation. They're part of God's good creation, meaning when God created everything through the Son, the idea was that people would live Forever. Death was not a part of God's creation. He did not say, you know what, you look like you can live about 740 years, you can get 900, you can get 10,000. The idea was for people to eternally live with God in the Garden of Eden. His intention was for everything to be lit up. But what was the light? It wasn't the sun, S-U-N. It was the sun, S-O-N. It was God who was supposed to be the light of his people. He was supposed to be the one that lit up everything in all of creation, that when people looked at him, they said, that's where my life comes from. And if you were to extend the analogy here, you know, if as you look at the sun, we would never live. You know, there's all sorts of stuff. There's one thing called the cosmological argument, whereas if you look at the fine-tuning of the universe, God has orchestrated everything in such a way that there would be no light possible, no life possible, unless God had orchestrated it in a very specific way. The tilting of the earth's axis, but even beyond that, photosynthesis that comes from the sun, plants and animals, all of us, we would freeze to death if we were even like tilted in just a different way, or if we were farther or closer to the sun, no life would happen. So there is this obviousness that life and the sun brings it. But what scripture tries to tell us is that ultimately that life comes from God. The person, the being who created the sun and the stars and the moon and everything else is ultimately God. Number two, darkness and death have invaded God's creation. Darkness and death invaded God's creation. In the beginning of the Bible, we learn this story about Adam and Eve and Satan and how people chose something over God. And darkness and death invaded God's creation. It was never a part of his desire for creation. Number three, light reveals us and allows us to receive God. You know, one of the painful things, if you ever like, if you really want to piss someone off, like when they're sleeping, just turn on a light, right? It's the worst thing. They're like, ah, stop. I hate your guts. Like it's all sorts of stuff come out, right? I do that to my kids all the time. It's great. My son just became a teenager yesterday. So I'm going to have fun with him for the next 15 years or so. So it's going to be super fun. Is that when you turn on a light, like it's bright, it's hard to see. And the light in John's gospel is a metaphor that God really sees you. He sees what you do in the darkest depths of your soul. He sees what you do without the lights off. He sees what you do late at night when you should be sleeping, and maybe you're looking at things on your phone or your computer that you shouldn't be doing, or you're out late and doing something. He sees you. And John's gospel helps us understand that God always sees. And there's probably a creepiness here that we can't get over, but it's a good thing because he says, you cannot hide anything from me. I see everything that you have done, And I want you anyways. And it also allows us to see God because we are revealed fully. And God says, I see everything about you, and I still want you. Number four, without God's light, you'll die. Without God revealing who you ultimately are, you know, the interesting thing about the gospel is that in order for you to get a cure, you have to know you have a disease. In order for you to have life, you have to know that you're racing towards death. In order for you to have a relationship with God, you have to realize that everything in your life without him points away from him. In order for you to have a relationship with God, you have to realize you are not inherently good, but bad. God's light is the way that you and I are able to live. And then these next two are kind of interesting. Number five, with all of God's light, you'll die. God is so great to us, he does not fully allow us to see him as he is. Scripture is very clear on this. If you see God in all of his fullness, you die immediately. And the reason for that is because you and I, without God, are not holy. A sinful human being cannot live in God's holy presence. We need to be made holy in order to see, in order to participate in him. And then number six, you know, someday all the lights will come on, just not yet. Someday, Scripture promises that you and I will see God in all of his fullness, and we will walk with him and talk with him, and he will stand in front of us, and we will not die because we will be ultimately made holy, and we will be fully in God's light, and he will be fully revealed to us. But that time has not come yet. So in chapter six, or chapter eight, excuse me, of the Gospel of John, he continues this motif about lightness and darkness. But Jesus is now speaking. We've we've kind of fast-forwarded the story a little bit. And Jesus says the sentence that is the title of this message and the reason we're here today. Jesus spoke to them again, because he's already been speaking to them. And he says, "'I am the light of the world.'" Now, this doesn't make quite sense yet of why he chooses this particular phrase. I'm going to tell you why he says this at the end of our message today. He says, I am the light of the world. And anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, I have never met a Christian who has said, once I started following Jesus, everything worked out perfectly. Man, all my neighbors like me. My kids started to behave. I never, I never ascend again, and I got a raise at work. I've never heard of a Christian who has said, once I gave my life to Jesus, everything worked out. In fact, most of the time, what I hear is things got harder immediately. I now had morals and standards and a reason for those morals and standards. I had to start saying and doing things that were not a part of my life before. Family members and friends looked at me like I was a weirdo, you know? It did not get easier. But what's interesting about just this portion, if we had more time, we could spend more time on this, but I want to bring two promises that I think he made. This is just my opinion. I don't want to say this is a theological imperative. This is just what I draw out of it, and I think I'm right. I think he makes two promises here. The first one is that we will have life now and forever, that when you begin to follow Jesus, not just to believe in him, you actually experience true life here and now. Now, the thing about the world is that it, it distracts us with so many things that we think are good and holy and incredible and the way we want to spend our lives doing things, but none of them, none of them are what Jesus has intended for us. I mean, he says in another place, what good is it to gain the whole world and to forfeit your very soul? It is an imposter faith to look at the world and say that we can derive our greatest hopes and desires from it. That's why God had to come into the world, because there was nothing here that could fully satisfy us. But when you believe in Jesus Christ and follow him, what you do is you go, I realize this place is good because God has made it good. But this place is not where my ultimate destination will be unless God is here with me. And you begin a life of purpose and greatness and dedication. You will finally find out what life is actually about when you start to follow Jesus. That does not mean it will be easy. That does not mean it will always be good from worldly standards. It may even mean you suffer. But what it does mean is you know that in eternity you will have life with God and that can begin now. Now, the second one is far more hard to accept and to realize. It's this one. Number two, we will not continually sin. Now, if I were to look into your life and you were to look into my life, you'd be like, "Eh, I see some sin in there. I see it, especially on Thursdays. I don't know what's about Thursdays, but that's a bad day for sin for some reason. If you and I were to unveil parts of our life to one another and we were to confess to one another to say, we do this thing and I feel like I can't get away from it. I am a Jesus believer and a Jesus follower. I feel like I can't get away from this sin. Or I just, quite frankly, I know that I am not perfect without Jesus. This one's hard because it's not saying Jesus does not promise that you will never sin again. What he promises is that when you sin, your sin will be forgiven, which by implication means you will sin. So how can we get to this one? How is this a promise? Well, you know, when you're walking along in your house and your parts of your house are dark and you can flip on a light, it only illuminates so much. You can flip on all the lights in your house and you can get most of your house lit, but not everywhere. There are parts in your house that won't be lit up. And the reason that is significant is there are parts in your life that you will occasionally step into the darkness, but because you are a Christ follower, you will be highly discomfort, highly uncomfortable there. You will realize that is not your place. You will realize that that is an intrusion upon the light in your life. You will realize that maybe going into the dark for a short amount of time feels good, and maybe for you, you, you delight in it, but you as a Christ follower, will realize that that is not for you. And you will come back to God, and you will say to him, I am so sorry, and I want to repent of what I did there. And I want you to bring me back into the light. That's the difference between people who walk in the light and the people who walk in darkness. Yet if we had more time, we could even look at the word walk. know, it was very commonplace for Christians to tell each other, how's your walk with God? And when I was a new Christian, I was like, I don't know, we don't go hiking together. Am I supposed to do that? And they're like, there was a metaphor for your relationship with him. You know, Moses was said to have talked with God and walked with him. But there are other places in scripture where people were not classified as having walked with God. Meaning in a daily sense, they did their best to honor God in everything that they said and everything that they did. Which means for you and I. If you become a Jesus follower and you get God's Holy Spirit within you, the moment you become a Christ follower, it means that the Holy Spirit will help lead you away from darkness. He will convict you and convince you and compel you to return to Jesus. But it means that you may go in the darkness for a bit. And it may mean that you need other Christians around you to pull you out. But a Christ follower is not meant to live. In darkness, you may be a temporary resident, but Jesus essentially says, "Once you understand what I bring, the darkness will seem like an intrusion upon your life, and you won't want to stay." So the conversation continues. The Pharisees heard him say that you're the light of the world, and he says, "Hey, you're, you're testifying about yourself. Testimony is not valid." So a testimony in court, especially at that time, required at least two witnesses. It didn't mean you couldn't go into the courtroom and said, I didn't do it. The judge is like, that's all I needed to hear. You're out. Like it required someone else to verify or say that you did it or not. Now you could plead guilty and you could, you could, um, Admit to the crime, but in order to be exonerated, in order to be um, a person who was found as innocent, you needed at least two people. And so when Jesus says this one thing about who he is, the Pharisees like, ah, you gotta have at least one other person to confirm you are who you say you are. Because what Jesus said was not just like, I'm a rabbi, I'm a good teacher, I know scripture better than you. He called himself the light of the world. The. The definite article, the word T-H-E, the, the one and only. And so they said, someone else has to verify this. And they thought they got him. And of course, Jesus gets out of it, no problem. He says this, even if I testify myself about myself, Jesus replied, my testimony is true because I know where I come from and where I'm going. But you don't know where I've come from. You do not believe I am who I said I am or where I'm going. And you judge by human standards, but I judge no one. He said, but... If I do judge, if I were to judge you, my judgment is true because it is not I alone. They played right into Jesus' hands. He's like, thank you for uh, telling me that at least two people need to verify who I am. Let me tell you about the second. He says, "I, I alone do not judge, but I and the Father who sent me. He says, even in your law, it is written... It is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies about myself, and God the Father who sent me testifies about me. Now, this is one of the things that would get Jesus killed. Because he would be claimed to have an exclusive relationship with God the Father, no one had ever had said God the Father has sent me to this earth to do this thing. They had had people who claimed to be the Messiah, they had people who claimed to be great teachers, but he was unique in the fact that he had a relationship with God, whom he called his personal Father, in a way that no one else had ever done. And then, because they're super smart individuals, they go, "Hey, where's your dad?" Hey, where is where's your father? Is he in the garage? Is he back at your place? And Jesus is like, you guys are morons. This is so bad, you know. That's not what I mean. He says, you neither know me nor my father. And this would have been hard. It would essentially be coming up to a Christian and saying, you do not know who God is. You have read the scriptures wrong. You do not have a relationship with the Father. All of your worship and all the things that you have done that you think is for God's glory is in vain. You are ignorant of who God actually is. He says, you don't know me or my Father. He said, if you knew me, you would also know my Father. He spoke these words by the treasury. Now, this is a weird detail. Can we acknowledge that? They're talking about God the Father. They're talking about all these sort of lofty things. And then right in the middle of this sentence, it says, he spoke these words by the treasury. Why is that there? Why why that detail? And this is why the gospels are so important and why biblical study is so important. Let me finish the sentence and I'll come back to this. He spoke these words by the treasury while teaching in the temple, but no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. So again, right in the middle of this, they're having this argument. Jesus says, I am a light of the world. The Pharisees somehow pick up that the light of the world thing is a very big deal. Jesus explains about testimony and witnesses, he talks about his relationship with the Father. And then there's this little detail that said he spoke these words by the treasury in the temple. It's a weird detail. You know, when you drove in here today, all the people who I know now have four-wheel drive, appreciate that. If I ever get into an accident or something like that, I'm calling one of you because I know you can drive through the snow. I appreciate that. But the reason I bring that up is when you drove into church this morning, if you're watching online, you've probably been here before. If you haven't, let me just describe it for you. When you drive into our church, you're coming down Stephanie. That's outside our church. It's a public road. And then when you turn in, you get to kind of the entrance. And then as you turn in again, you get to the parking lot and you get out of your car and you come in and you get to the lobby. And then you go through these doors and you enter into our auditorium. All of those places I named besides the outside road are part of our church. They're sections and each section is a different purpose. When you go out into the parking lot, you park your car. When you come into the lobby, you get coffee you talk with people. And then you come in here and you worship and you hear You know, in Jesus' time, the temple had various sections to it. There was the court of the Gentiles. There was the court of women. There was an inner court, and there was a place of a holy of holies. Right here by the treasury is called the court of women, and it is the place where women gathered. That's a great name for the court of women, right? But what's unique about this portion of the temple is right next to the treasury stood huge lamps. Some people believe that they were 40, 60 feet tall. And during this time of year, they would light these lamps, and legend has it, um, and so some of the Mishra would say, that these lamps were so bright that they lit up all of Israel. That, that the lamps that they had gone on, people had to go up on these big ladders and light them, and it lit up the entire city. Now, that's probably hyperbole, but the point is, here in this court of women were giant lamps on stands, and right next to them is Jesus teaching about the light of the world. Not a coincidence, because these lamps ultimately brought light to the entire city. They were symbolic of the beacon of hope that the city would provide, hopefully, to the rest of the world. And Jesus stands by them, and maybe he looks up and he says, that's not real light. I am the real light. I am the light of this city, of your lives, because those lamps were representative of God's Shekinah glory. His radiance throughout the entire world. And Jesus personified himself as God's Shekinah glory, as he's standing next to a lamp in the court of women. It's an incredible thing that he said. But not only did he have the audacity to say that he was the light of the world, he would tell his followers that they have a responsibility too. In the Gospel of Matthew, he would say this, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on lampstands, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, you people who choose to follow me, let your light shine before others so that you may see, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Not only did he say he was the light of the world, but he chose his followers to be the light of the world because someday... He would be gone. And he says, I don't want the light to go out. I'm returning to the Father. You will remain, and you will be the light of the world. The Apostle Paul picks this up when he writes to the city of Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 5. And he's talking to Christians who have probably been Christian for 30, 40 years, somewhere around there. Jesus is gone by this time. The disciples have built up the church. The Holy Spirit has uh, planted itself in all of his Christ followers. And the apostles, especially the Apostle Paul, went around the world and started to plant churches. And in those churches, he told Christians to behave in a way that was different. Because remember, the world was in darkness. But the disciples, they were to bring lights to these cities and those people were to be light of the world. So Paul says this, he says, no one deceive you with empty arguments for God's wrath is coming. And we're like, we don't really like that part on the disobedient because of these things. Therefore, do not become partners. For once you were in darkness, but now you are the light of the world and walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists all goodness, righteousness, and truth, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. And he says, don't participate, Christians. Do not participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what is done in them by secret. Most of us would be like, yeah, I pretty much don't tell people what I do in the dark. Everything exposed by light is made visible, For what makes everything visible is light. You're like, thanks, Paul. Didn't know that one. Appreciate that. Therefore, it is said, get up, sleeper, and rise up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I mean, he ends this with the ultimate juxtaposition of darkness and light. It's the reason the world is so afraid of death, because when the world believes that they die, you just go to eternal darkness. You do not exist anymore. And it's why Christianity is so prevalent and so hopeful. And maybe it's part of the reason that when people die, they said, I saw what? A light. Whether that's just wishful thinking or the neurons in your brain firing and telling you something, or it's that you see God who is the light of all of the world. I'm not sure. But in this sense, Paul says, you must walk in the light because the world is in darkness. Because someday you will be clothed in it. And someday you will see God in His all of his Shekinah glory. But you've gotten a glimpse through Jesus Christ. You've seen the light of the world. Now be it. Now after all this heaviness, let's try to make this practical. I'm going to give you three next steps. Number one, take note of what you do in the dark. I hate to break it to you, but you all sin. So do I. And there are things we do in the dark that we shouldn't. There are things that we think and see and watch. And maybe it's not a physical absence of light. Maybe it's just the time in your life that you've put yourself in a darkness because you don't like God for whatever reason. You're intentionally disobeying him or you're going through a tough time and you can't see that he is with you. And you do something and say something that you wouldn't have otherwise in the light. Maybe one of the things you need to do is to take note of what you do in the dark. Number two is to pray to God in private and perform good works in public. You know, most of us do not like to be known for serving others and and for giving and for helping other people. But it's interesting. It's fascinating. Scripture actually teaches the exact opposite. Do good works so that other people may see what you have done and give glory to God. Bring good works out into the light so everyone can see it. And number three is be the light to those who live in the dark. Life is hard. It's hard for Christians. It's doubly hard or worse for non-Christians. You need to be the person in their life that will point them to God, that will be the light in the darkness, that will be the comfort in their distress, that will be the joy in their pain. You need to be the light of the world, because that is what God has commanded us to do. Let me pray for you, Father. It's a long story filled with lots of metaphors, Lord. If we can just get a couple things from here, Lord, thank you so much for revealing our sin to our to us, to others, and to you. Thank you for bringing us into the light to see sometimes the ugliness that we portray. But Lord, you have seen us at our worst, and you have still said that you love us and care for us and want us. Thank you so much. You don't just see the good parts and say, I want that person. You see all of it. And you've demonstrated upon the cross that you have wanted us all along. Lord, help us take note of what we do in the darkness and run from it, flee from it. Lord, help us be the light of the world and to showcase your son to all who need it. Lord, thank you for your scripture, for your son, for your spirit, and Father, for you and your grace and truth that came through your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Next week, we're going to look at one of my favorite stories where Jesus said he is the good shepherd. Thank you so much for being here. I know we talked a lot. You're already blessed in Christ. Have a great Sunday. Drive safe. See you later.